Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Angelo Sirbas, an expert orbital and ophthalmic facial plastic surgeon. He specializes in aesthetic oculofacial surgery and minimally invasive eye rejuvenation. His work focuses on blepharoplasty or eyelid surgery, brow lifts and surgery of the aging face. He's received international recognition for his innovative surgical techniques and is sought after by patients from around the world for help in correcting some of the most challenging and complicated cases. Good morning, Angelo Sirbas. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. We, we've taken a bit of time to organise this one because you're so busy and popular, but thank you for coming. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so, Dr. Sirbas, why don't you just uh, explain to our listeners and uh, YouTube uh, viewers who are going to be joining us soon, what exactly is your specialty? What is oculoplastic surgery? It's a good question because uh, not a lot of people know about it, especially in Australia. So, oculoplastic surgery is the nexus between ophthalmic and eye surgery and plastic surgery as it relates to the face and the periocular area. Yeah. So most people that are ocular plastic surgeons have gone through a pathway where they have done some general surgery like myself and then have gone into formal ophthalmology training. Yeah. And once they've finished that, they've subspecialized and super specialized into plastic surgery and reconstruction involving the eye, the orbit, and the facial structures. Hmm. Initially, it was mainly functional. So we work a lot with other surgeons. We work with the plastic surgeons, the ENT surgeons, often with the neurosurgeons or the craniofacial surgeons if the, if the various reconstructions involve the brain or you know, the zygoma or other facial bones. So basically, it's involved in reconstructing the orbit and the tissues around the eye. And why did you choose that? It's pretty niche, isn't it? It is niche. I always enjoyed the precision and the accuracy that was required for ophthalmology. So my initial training was in microsurgery, yeah. doing cataract surgery, retinal surgery, various other procedures inside the eye. And there's a lot of precision that's required for that. And I was drawn to the precision that's required in the plastic surgery around the eye. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in other areas of plastic surgery, if the incision or the reconstruction is a millimetre or two out, that's not such a problem if it's on the back or on the leg. But those sorts of distances and accuracies are really, really important when you're dealing with the eyelid and the structures around the eye. Yeah. And I saw a nice uh, you know, nexus between ophthalmology and the accuracy of that and the accuracy required in ocular plastic surgery. Cool. It's um, such a delicate area, isn't it? I mean, in terms of you're dealing with like function anesthetics, um, you know, eyesight. Correct. So I think <laughs> so that's, that, that's a very good point, though, because 
one of the most important things in aesthetic surgery or plastic surgery around the eye is that the functional component has to be paramount in any procedure that you do. Yeah. In our reconstructive procedures, the first thing that we always look at is maintaining the function of the eye, maintaining the surface of the eye. As you can imagine, any sort of discomfort or irregularity on the surface of the eye is really, really painful. Yeah. And it's a lifelong thing for the patient. So function's the most important thing, preserving function. And then once you've done that and you've established your ability to control the function and make sure it's there, then the next step is the aesthetic aspect of the surgery. Right, okay. And tell us about your practice. Where are you based and what are you doing day to day? What are your sort of, you know, run of the mill things? My practice is based in uh, the Sydney CBD. So we're on the corner of York Street and Jameson Street. So we have a clinic there where I see patients and uh, the referrals come there. But we also have a day surgery. We have a licensed day surgery on the premises where a lot of the surgery that I do is performed. So usually we would be consulting and seeing patients about half the week and the other half of the week would be taken up with uh, surgeries. I do operate in uh, other hospitals. Often I have collaborations with other plastic and facial plastic surgeons mm. and they may be doing a procedure on another part of the body and they may ask me to come in and operate around the eye or help them out. And when you're uh, working in collaboration with these other surgeons, are you working more on an aesthetic or a functional sort of? It's a good question. Most of it is aesthetic. Yeah. So most of the patients that we have uh, are coming to me for blepharoplasty or upper or lower lid or brow surgery. And the awareness of individual specialization is improving in Australia. I remember 10 years ago, people would see uh, a surgeon and they might say, well, I'll have my liposuction, I'll have my rhinoplasty, and I'll have my eyelid surgery done by the same surgeon. Mm. That was something that was really, really uncommon in my time in America. Often I would see patients that I would operate on their eyelids, I would do the blepharoplasty, and they might say to me, well, I'm going to see such and such to have my rhinoplasty done, or I'm going to see another surgeon from my facelift. So that super specialization was that awareness of it was very, very common in America. Yeah. Not so much here, but I think it is changing. So I would see patients that are maybe having a breast augmentation or some liposuction that would say to me, it would it be possible for you to do my blepharoplasty at the same time as I'm seeing my other surgeon? Yeah. So most of the collaborations are aesthetic. And just for people that are, uh, that are listening that might not be uh, medical health professionals, could you just explain what a blepharoplasty is? Yeah, it's a good question. So the most common operation I perform is eyelid surgery where the patient will come in and say to me, I'm looking tired, my eyelids are heavy, I've got bags under my eyes. Now, we'll talk a little bit later about the various causations of all those complaints, but I guess the most common complaint is people come in and say to me, my upper eyelids are droopy. Yeah. I think I've got too much skin there. I think I'd, I would look better if I had some of that removed. Yeah. And there's lots of variations in that that will go that we'll discuss later, yeah. but that's fundamentally what it is. So it's an operation on the upper or the lower eyelid where we remove, reposition, and recontour the tissues to give a better aesthetic outcome. Yeah. yeah. Just touching on your time in the States again, when were you there and what were you doing and why did you come back? So initially I went to uh, the US about 
16, 17 years ago now. So I was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to go to Columbia University, where I did a lot of research on orbital conditions and various pathologies, and also did a lot of work in aesthetic eyelid surgery with Mm. some of the surgeons there. Whilst I was there, I was offered a position uh, in Los Angeles at UCLA as a faculty member there. Initially, I was intending to only stay for a year or two and then return to uh, America. But I met my future wife uh, while I was in New York. So <laughs> that right behind us, keeping a exactly close right, exactly right. <laughs> so a one-year uh, trip to the US turned into about seven years. Seven years, great. Yeah, and I don't know if this translates into eye surgery, but we've had multiple surgeons on here, and we've sort of discussed, you know, trends and aesthetic tastes in different countries. And I guess the stereotype in America is, you know, a bit more bold, a little bit more obvious i guess does that translate to eyes in any way look i think it does i think uh the social media generation which i i guess i'm on the cusp of now has caused quite a few problems in eye surgery all right and also in some facial surgery as well there's a couple of papers that i saw presented at some recent aesthetic meetings which suggests that when people take selfies the magnification factor is about 25 to 30%. Yes. So your eyes are going to look a little bit different. Your nose is going to look a bit different. And some of those preconceptions of what people want to look like, you have to educate them about. But I would say certainly in the States, people are quite happy to have a major change in their facial aesthetic and their eyelid surgery. And they're quite happy to talk about it. Yeah. That's changing a little bit here, but certainly when I was there, Uh, in Los Angeles, and I go regularly to update uh, my skills and visit surgeons there. A a lot of the people are quite happy to say, well, you know, I just had my facelift, I just had my rhinoplasty, I just had my eyelid surgery. I have noticed that 10 years ago when I came back to Sydney, people were a little bit reticent to talk about botulinum toxin or fillers, but now that's probably okay. Yeah. People are starting, so that's starting to move as well. People are not quite so comfortable saying, you know, what do you think about my facelift or what do you think about my (laughs) eyelid surgery? But the conversations around botulinum toxin and muscle relaxants are much more common now than they were 10 years ago, I think. I've even seen, even within Australia, because I've got a a couple of businesses in Canberra uh, clinics and just looking at the difference between people's willingness to have those conversations between Sydney and Canberra, um, I think the same, sort of almost a, a parallel to what you're talking about yeah. versus Los Angeles. People in Canberra are very, very conservative. Correct. So I'd take my trips there and I'd notice the difference That's between the difference. patient interaction and no one wanting to pay on card. There was, you know, <laughs> people <That's laughs> coming right. in on, 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 the, on the download to sort of get things done. So it's an interesting sort of discussion around people's uh, uh, comfort levels talking about these procedures in different parts of the world. And I, I think that's very true. I think uh, certainly Sydney uh, is tending more towards the west coast of yeah. uh, the USA versus the rest of Australia. And I think you've noticed that, David, as well. You probably yeah, as well, Jake. Definitely. <laughs> um, I wanted to just touch back on what you were saying about photography because we visited your beautiful clinic. It's amazing. And we had a brief chat about your before and after photography. And you just mentioned that, you know, using a phone might be a little bit um, distorting. Yes. H- how do you take your own photos for your eye uh, patients? It's a good question. We have a standardized photography room where we have uh, set up where we have 
a flash, a diffuse flash and a standard background and we take the photos, we take a set of six to nine photos that are always standardized in various positions yeah. and under the same lighting conditions. I think that's really important because if you go to a presentation or if you go to a lecture or a surgeon shows you some photos or an injector, one of the first things that I look at is are the two photos comparable? Yes. And it's a real problem when they're not yeah. because people will tend to automatically discount that procedure if they can't compare it. It's like comparing apples and pears. Correct. So yeah. it's really, really difficult. So I'll go to a lecture and if the photos are not comparable and poor, there's nothing to be gained. I mean, you can't really tell whether what the person is talking about is actually useful. Yeah. So they're doing themselves a, a disservice and they're also doing the technology or the technique a disservice. Yeah. So I think photography is really, really important. You often see things on websites or promotional material that's difficult to get a good idea from. Yeah. So I think it's hard to sort through all those issues, as I'm sure you've found, yeah, David, yeah. as well. I think you raise a good point as well in terms of um, you know, having them consistent. I think that from a patient psychology perspective, you might think, well, if this person can't get their photos right, how are they going to get my surgery right? <laughs> Oh, you know, in terms true. of every touch point of um, interaction with a potential patient needs to be consistent and yeah. part of your branding. And if yeah. you can't get it right, then, yeah, you sort of lose faith or have some insight into how that practitioner <clears throat> may work. I think it's also important for the patient because often they'll come to me and uh, a lot of the patients that I have will have an ideal eyelid or aesthetic around the eye that they would like. At the moment depending on the ethnographic group that the patient's from, the Los Angeles Persian look, which I guess is the Kardashian look, is really, really popular. Yeah. So that's a super high sculpted upper eyelid with minimal tissue in that area. And that looks great if you've got the facial features for it, but many people from a different ethnic background, yeah. that's going to look really bad. Yeah. So part of the job is educating patients saying, look, you know, looks very good on, you know, Kendall or Chloe. But <laughs> I'm I impressed you know the names. I'm very... <laughs> He's lived in <laughs> Beverly Hills, of course he knows. <laughs> the, only, the only reason I know the names is because often people will bring in photographs yeah, or, right. or show me and say, well, look, you know, I'd like to have this done. And I said, well... It's not a is menu it, that you can pick from, is it? It's 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 a there's a lot of education involved and uh, different techniques that you can use to give people what they want. Sure, and just not to do this to death, but one more question: because you're doing functional eye surgery, and I guess movement and blinking is part of that. Do it you is. do videos as well? Yeah. So often, one of the things that I always assess is the tear film and the ocular surface. So often, patients after they have eyelid surgery, especially in Australia can run the risk of their eyes feeling a little bit dry okay. if too much tissue is taken or if the muscle is damaged. So from an ophthalmology background, I have several objective tests that we use to check the tear film, the quality of the tear film, the amount of the tear film. And I have a microscope that I use to look at the tear film and the way that the eye is blinking. Right, yeah. And when you do that, you can have an insight into what to tell the patient. So listen, you know, the chance of you having a problem afterwards is very low. Yeah. Or the chance of you having a problem if we're aggressive or do this particular surgery is quite high. Yeah. So 
the function of the eye is really, really important to assess when you're doing blepharoplasty. Yeah. And it's a difficult thing to do if you don't have the right background or the right equipment. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I, I just, uh, I, it's the only area of surgery that I think about watching and it makes me, feel sque- makes me feel squeamish. I can watch other sorts of surgery, but as soon as the eye's involved, I don't know what it is. I just, yeah. I find it difficult to. I've seen that in several of my assistants yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> what is it about the eyes? Because maybe we relate, relate to that as what makes us a person. I mean, you know what I mean? Like you can't really imagine a face without eyes. It's, it seems like. It, it's certainly, know. it's certainly a center, you know, to, you know, coin an old cliche, often people are you know, the eyes of the window to the soul and people are often drawn to the eyes of a person. And you've seen all those studies that when you're looking at a painting or when you're meeting a different person, you use an eye tracking device Mm. and there's a standard pattern that the human brain follows. And part of the central part of that pattern is looking at the the person's eyes. So I think it's a critical thing. Where it also plays into is that any imperfection, any asymmetry is immediately recognizable because yeah. you focus on someone's eyes exactly exactly so the difficulty with the surgery is educating the patients and saying there's a little bit of asymmetry now and we're going to try and fix that with the surgery yeah. because you can bet your bottom dollar that patients will notice any asymmetry beforehand oh yeah and and unless you know afterwards rather and unless you tell them that everybody's got a little bit of asymmetry and have a look at this photo that we've taken today and you'll notice this, this, and this, often the patients will say to me, you're right, I, I never noticed that. Yeah. And then if you can educate them and say, listen, we're going to try and fix this or we're trying to get this a little bit better, but it's still not going to be completely symmetrical because nobody's completely symmetrical. Yeah, yeah. and these themes are the same for surgery Especially and, exactly. and everything else. Especially the nose. Exactly. And we spoke about that central part of the face. There's just nowhere to hide if you're botched. You just <laughs> correct. So that's, <laughs> you so can't that's, hide that. That's right. So that's another you know facial feature that you know you have to be really accurate on. Yeah, every millimeter can make the difference. Exactly. I'm almost thinking that if you created perfect symmetry, it might actually look more unnatural than some asymmetry. Yeah, I think it does. And often, if you look at uh, the front cover of the various fashion magazines, I'm often amazed at the asymmetry of, you know, the beautiful people that are shown there. Yeah. Asymmetry in and of itself is not unattractive. It just depends on the other structures around the eye and the face. Yeah. So that's an important thing because I have many patients who have a high level of asymmetry and they perceive the problem as being related to their eyelid or the heaviness of the skin, or the crepiness of the skin. But what the problem is, fundamentally, is an asymmetry in the bony structure. Mm. The orbit's in a different spot. The jaw's in a different spot. And once you explain those things and work out a plan to try and get better symmetry, patients are usually happier after the surgery. Yeah. It comes down to the consultation process, which is so important. It does. It's really important. And we were having a chat upstairs before we were even recording, talking about um, how important it is that, patient selection is appropriate and it's almost it almost seems like a successful outcome whether it be surgical or non-surgical actually starts at the consult i think that's true and one of the things that i discuss with patients is the likelihood of the operation being a technical success and the likelihood of them being happy yeah. with the result 
Sometimes, not often, but sometimes they might be slightly different. And that's something that you need to assess at the consultation and the patient's conceptions of what they want. And how things are going to turn out is really, really set up at that first appointment when you explain to the patient, you know, this is very reasonable expectation. You know, the technology and the technique that I will employ has got a very good chance of achieving the result that you want. Conversely, if you have patient with unrealistic expectations, it's really important to discuss that then because there's no point doing a technically excellent operation and the patient being really unhappy. Because at the end of the day, in aesthetic surgery, the gold standard of success is based on the patient's perception. You know, the surgeon may say, oh, you know, this looks fantastic till they're blue in the face. But if the patient's not happy with the result, then it's not a successful surgery. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you can get the opposite too. Surgeon might go, mm, maybe not so great, but the patient loves it. And exactly it's- <laughs> right. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. That's so as true. long as the patient's happy and everything's functionally working okay, then exactly. Yeah. You know, and it's important to do procedures, all procedures, but especially around the eye. It's really critical to do an operation that's going to have a very, very low chance of a downside. What I say to patients when we have surgery is, we're gonna do this surgery, and patients will often say to me, oh look, I've read some horror stories about people not being able to close their eyes or getting a scar on the surface of their eye because the surgery's gone wrong. Mm. You know, and I will say, listen, we're gonna err on the side of you not having any functional problems whatsoever. So it's really important to be aware that when you're doing blepharoplasty or surgery around the eye or the brow, that the downside of a complication can be really catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. Especially important when you're just doing elective procedures for a cosmetic outcome. Exactly right. I guess it's different when you're being rushed to emergency for something that's life-threatening or to do with your health. Yeah, the patient's expectations for elective cosmetic surgery are are much different than, for instance, I have a group of patients that I do a lot of surgery on in periocular skin cancer and reconstruction. So often these patients have very large tumours involving the eyelid or structures around the eye, and we have to remove that Mm. and reconstruct the eyelids. Now, that's a process that's often very difficult because, as you can imagine, if you remove the eyelid to try and replace it with a structure that blinks and opens and closes to protect the eye is really, really difficult. And the aesthetic expectations there come second to the functional expectations. Absolutely. Now, let's get into the meat of the topic of Of today. (laughs) So we we briefly explained what a blepharoplasty is, but should we start with upper and then go to lower? Sure, I think that's a good way to do it. Systematic. Now, why do so many people, even young people that, you know, we see in their injecting beds and wherever, complain of heavy eyelids? Why does that happen? There's a couple of reasons, and it depends a little bit on your genetics and ethnic group. But let's take a classic example. Caucasian patients, which is mainly our population here in Australia. What happens as you get older is you get a lot of skin changes, you get a lot of dermal changes, which occur in all parts of the body, but are very prevalent in the eyelid. Mm. The reason they are is the skin of the eyelid is the thinnest in the body. And its support structures also age very quickly and are very delicate. Mm. 
So in a child, for instance, the skin of the upper eyelid is very taut and connected to the underlying structures in a very complex but voluminous way so, so that it looks nice and full and youthful. As you get a little bit older, a lot of those internal structures atrophy. Yeah. So the connections of the skin to the deeper tissues and the eyelid loosen up and it becomes crepey. It becomes saggy. Yeah. It tends to droop over the eyelids. Another thing that happens is the muscle that lifts the eyelid ages. Yes. So that muscle tends to, as it ages, it means that the eyelid drops over the pupil. Yeah. And one of the thing, things that people notice is that the heaviness of the loose skin plus the aging of the muscle causes the whole upper eyelid to droop. Mm. And people complain to me that, look, everybody thinks I'm tired. Everybody thinks I'm sleepy. Or at the end of the day, I start to get headaches because I'm constantly trying to lift my eyelids by using my brow. That's yeah. a really common complaint. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's also indirectly related to you know us injectors. So when we're doing anti-wrinkle treatments, yes, one of the biggest mistakes we can make is if someone's got permanent forehead lines and they almost look like they're lifting the eyebrows the whole time, exactly. if you jump yeah. in there and relax that muscle, you'll give them a heavy brow or heavy eyelids. Exactly, yeah. So that's something that... It's a difficult situation because sometimes patients come to you and they come to me and they say, listen, you know, these forehead lines are driving me crazy. And I'll say, listen, you know, <laughs> part of the reason that you can still see and drive is because they're there. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so we can't get rid of all of them. Yeah. But mainly it's related to aging of the skin, the muscle, also that the subdermal tissues in the upper eyelid are really complex. Right. There's several different pockets of fat. There's several little ligaments, and all those start to get a bit loose and droop, like they do in other parts of the body. So yeah. if there's a little bit of fat and, and uh, support, I guess, in the eyelid, is there any way of, rather than chopping out the loose skin, revolumizing, or is that yeah, it's a Yeah, it's a good question. I think it, it certainly is in younger patients. Okay. One of the things that I've found in the eyelid is revolumizing the eyelid in younger patients is useful if the envelope is good. Okay. Now, what I mean by the envelope is the skin and the dermis. Yes. If you've got nice quality skin and nice thick skin, then sometimes patients who may genetically have slightly more hollow eyes, yeah. which is really common in some ethnic groups. One of the fascinating things about eyelid surgery and upper eyelid surgery is that some patients never have any fat in their upper eyelid you know, no matter how old they get. And they never had some when they were young. Yeah. Whereas other patients always have had a slight puffy upper eyelid. Yeah. Those patients age and have different problems to the ones that have no fat. Yeah. But certainly in someone who's got good skin, often I would say in patients that are less than 30, 35 and have looked after their skin, revolumizing an area that they feel is hollow with fillers, yeah. I think is useful. And I, and I certainly do do that. Obviously, we'll talk about some of the critical risks involved in, the, in yeah. that inject, because that's one of the most difficult areas to inject accurately in, as you know, Jake. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we sort of touched on it before, but what are the sort of genetic groups or subpopulations that might be more prone to heavy eyelids than people who never get it? Yeah. The most common group that's prone to heaviness of the upper eyelids and droopiness 
that I see is a Anglo-Celtic group, yeah, which I is really, really pop. You know, <clears throat> obviously that's most of the population, as I was about to say, here in Australia. Yeah, and what happens is genetically, the skin. Most of these people are from you know England, Ireland, Scotland, Northern Europe, Scandinavia, and they've all emigrated to Australia, where the ambulance ambient light levels are far higher than, yeah. as you know, having moved over. <laughs> exactly right. So the sun damage that you see and the atrophy of the facial tissues is extraordinary. And I recently had a patient who uh, had a twin sister and they had come over from the UK. One twin had stayed in the UK. The other one had been in Australia for 25 years mm. and her sister was visiting so they were in the clinic on the same day. The difference was absolutely extraordinary. Wow. And that's all related to, you know, UV light and exposure. Gosh. Was she someone that sort of went and purposefully sought out a, a lot of sun or was this just no, normal I living? No, just... I think it's normal living. So right. they, I think uh, what had happened is they'd both come over at 18 and yeah. one had gone back and now this was 35 years later. Yeah. You know, obviously there's... You know, when you come from the UK, as you know, Jake, you know, the beach culture here is very alluring. <laughs> yeah. So I suspect there was a little bit of uh, sun worship involved there. Sure. Fair enough. It's always interesting seeing those twin studies. It is. Yeah. In, I, I think it's, different... a, it's quite amazing, really. It's quite amazing. The, the effects of, you know, the combination, as we're seeing in a lot of things in medicine now, the combination of genetics and its interaction with environment is really critical in a lot of fundamental processes in the body, be that disease processes, and I suspect probably in the aging processes as well. Absolutely. Is there a, a minimum age that you would operate on for someone who complains of heaviness? Look, it's a good question. There are a couple of different reasons that people complain of heaviness. One of them is the functional problem of ptosis. And by ptosis, I mean that the eyelid it itself is droopy and covers the pupil. Yeah. Now that's a condition that has different sort of causes to heavy eyelid skin. And in those patients, it's a functional problem that we operate on quite early. Yeah. So, you know, I have patients who are 15, 16, 17 that require that surgery for functional reasons. Yeah. In terms of a patient coming to me and saying, look, I see a little excess skin in my upper eyelid when I put my makeup on. Yeah. That's a conversation that I sometimes have with patients in their late 20s. And sometimes their expectations are very reasonable and the surgery is indicated. Yeah. And sometimes after the consultation, they will decide themselves often that it's not especially serious and they don't want to don't go wait ahead. Till they're 40 or whatever. I, I don't, yeah, so I don't really have a minimum age per se, but it does depend on the patients. I have quite a few patients who are in their late 20s and early 30s. With those patients, I like to discuss non-invasive options, which you know quite a lot about, yeah. to see if they would be an option for them. Yeah. It's, this, it's actually more critical when we get onto lower eyelid surgery in younger patients, yes, those options are often useful, but tricky to perform and very technique and operator dependent, I've found. Yeah, I agree for sure. Um, from a patient perspective, yes. could you just briefly 
walk us through what that, the upper uh, blepharoplasty procedure involves? I guess maybe let's talk a little bit about the consult yes. and then yeah. the surgery and then recovery and we'll just so someone gets an idea about what's actually... Exactly, yeah. So usually I would see a patient for the initial consultation and they'll discuss the, pro, uh, the problem that they're having or the problem that they perceive. I'll examine the eye, make sure the, the function of the eye and the ocular surface is reasonable. And then I'll discuss the technique that we're going to use. Usually I take a series of measurements related to the position of the eyelid, the amount of skin, the elasticity of the skin, the position of the brow. And then I always see them a second time to repeat those measurements to discuss the surgery again. The surgery itself uh, is day surgery and it's performed under local anesthesia with uh, intravenous sedation. Okay, that's useful because a lot of people are scared of, you know, a GA or going, yeah. going to sleep. I'm surprised at the number of patients that I've seen who come to me for revision surgery that have said to me they had a general anaesthetic for their blepharoplasty or upper eyelid surgery. Yeah, uh, It's really quite surprising to me because I think in terms of post-operative recovery and people getting up and back to work faster, you're always better off having less anaesthetic drugs. Of course. So I talk to them about the surgery. On the day of surgery, the actual procedure itself, depending on what I'm doing, may take about an hour and a half or an hour, hour and a half, depending on what we're doing. The patient usually comes a half an hour before that and is checked into the day surgery. And usually they stay a half an hour after that. Mm -hmm. Now, I use a couple of special techniques to decrease the downtime because one of the things that the patients always ask me is, how long do I need to take off work? Yes. Usually the sutures that I use are always non-absorbable sutures because they cause less reaction in the eyelid. And I take those out at five, six or seven days, depending on the age of the patient and the surgery. So I like the patient to not go to work till the sutures are removed. Yeah. So usually I would do the surgery on a Thursday or a Friday and the patient would go back to work usually on Monday week. So about yeah. 10 days. Okay. Now, what can they do in that time? Because people say, well, you know, what am I going to look like? What's Am I going to be able to do anything? So we use a, a special kit that we give the patient afterwards that involves a set of icing and compression goggles that we've been using now for a year that decrease the swelling and the bruising. Mm. And then we use a special ice mask and a kit for a couple of days after that. And we find that that helps the recovery in terms of swelling and bruising such that the patient can wear makeup at about seven or eight days. Now, the next day I tell the patient, you got to take it easy for a few days. That doesn't mean that, you know, if you didn't need to get in your car and drive somewhere to do a job, you can do that. But I tell them, look, it's nice to schedule some time where you don't have to do a lot of things. Like you, you get somebody else maybe to pick up the kids for a day or two yeah. or don't go to that yoga or Pilates <laughs> class, you know, for the next week. Look, I mean, I think it's an amusing thing to me that I really have to spell this out to the patients yeah. because they, they – they do this all the time and they'll say to me I, I might see some of them a week later when i'm taking the sutures out and they say you know it was going really well and then this morning it was a little bit more swollen and i'll say well what did you do this morning and i said well i didn't do anything special i just did my yoga class and then and some weights and, and, yeah just so, ran a just ran a lazy 10 kilometers down so all those things are really important and they're actually really important for a couple of months yeah because as you can imagine if you've had any 
knee surgery or any type of orthopedic surgery, it's fine after a few weeks. But even months down the track, if you do something strenuous or go for a run or play a hard game of tennis or cricket, you sort of still feel it in that joint. And the final healing for all these tissues can be 12 months. So I say, the patients will say to me, you know, the incision. The incision's a really critical thing for eyelid surgery because it's in an area that is very visible. So you've got to make it as good as possible. And the incision continues to improve in all these patients for 12 months. So what I say to them is, look, in a month's time, you'll be fine for important social engagements. But when you go home and you're taking your makeup off, you'll still be able to see the incision. Yeah. But 12, 18 months later, that will improve such that you'll have difficulty seeing it as well. But it's important to spell that out because patients, when I see them at two months or three months for their final checkup, might say to me, well, you know, when I'm putting my makeup on at night, I can sort of still see the incision. And I say, look, that's normal, Yes. but it will fade with time. Do you ever get people who keloid on their eyelid? It's a good question. I haven't had a patient that's had that problem since I've been doing the surgery for the last 20 years. Yeah. Theoretically, obviously, it's possible. It's more difficult in the eyelid skin because of the thinness of the skin and the lack of some of the subdermal tissues that are related to keloid scarring. It's possible if the incision is placed in the wrong spot. Right. So if the incision is too too medial, by that I mean too close to the nasal bridge, or too lateral, by that I mean too far onto the outer side of the eyelid and the eyebrow, that skin's quite different. So that's often where I see patients that come to me after surgery and they'll say, look, I really hate this incision. I'm really scared of having another one because this has happened. Mm. So there's usually a reason for it. But if you put the incision in the right spot, the risk of keloid scarring or abnormal scarring, let's say, is less than 1%. Yeah. Am I correct in assuming you try and make that incision sit where the the natural fold is so when they've got their eyes open it sort of is hidden exactly yeah so often i it's a discussion with the patient so often i will put the incision uh in the natural eyelid crease yeah some patients i have some uh asian patients want that crease changed so they might say to me look i've always felt either a I don't have an eyelid crease and I'd like you to create one, which is a really common surgery as well. Or B, I don't like the position of my crease. I'd like to have a higher eyelid crease, just like this photo here in the magazine. (laughs) And then I discuss the pros and cons of that. One of the critical things with eye surgery is often when you're looking at a patient straight ahead, the crease is well hidden. But when the patient looks down, unless you're comfortable with various techniques, the crease is much more obvious and a surgical crease is much more obvious. So what I like to do is I have a variation on the what I call the hardness of the crease. And by that I mean, if somebody's never had eyelid surgery and they look down, often you don't see an eyelid crease because the tissues relax and the muscle relaxes. And you can replicate that to a significant extent in blepharoplasty surgery by knowing which layers to suture together. So often in patients that have had a blepharoplasty, what happens is people cut out the skin and the muscle and they just sew it up, not preserving the layers between the skin, between the muscle 
and between the submuscle tissues. And if you can do that, you replicate the natural movement of the crease that hasn't been operated on. So that's one of the critical things, you know, when patients look down, what that crease and that incision looks like is really important. Yeah. So, Animation is a... Exactly, yeah. exactly. So often you'll see photos of patients that have had facial surgery or different types of surgery, and they'll be static photos, and they'll look fine. But when you actually meet that person, there's, there's something not quite right in how the face is moving. And I'm sure you guys see that all the time in patients that have had, you know, non-invasive surgery with other fillers or yeah. botulinum. Yeah. There's, sometimes if people don't exactly know the, the total aesthetics it looks a little bit abnormal yeah. yeah absolutely i think going back to what we said you know photos is one thing but how we move smile kiss blink all those things have got to match otherwise there's just a bit of a, a mismatch when you sort of talk to someone exactly there's something not quite right and sometimes it's hard to put your finger on it yeah. unless you really examine it well as human beings we're very very good at recognizing patterns very much so um so I think that's like a defense mechanism helps us get away from danger if we recognize if we something dangerous is coming. So, but I think that um, that ability to scan the human body and go that doesn't look right. It's it's it happens. It's just something that we innately are able to do. So when you have surgery that's gone not quite right or it's a bit overcooked, you can you can, you can tell straight that away. Real quick. You might not be able to go know exactly what happened, but you your eye is telling you that there's something that's just not natural about that. Correct. Definitely. Correct. Um, just going back to the Asian eyelid, because that's something, you know, obviously in Sydney, we've got a lot of Asian clients. We do. And I hate that term Asian. It's so broad and, you know, there's lots of different subgroups. But can you just break it down? What, what are your clients asking for and what is a double eyelid? And It's a, it's a good question. And you're right. There are several. Uh, there are. I basically break them into three surgical groups. So there's Southeast Asia, uh, Northeast Asia, yes, where cosmetic surgery is really, really popular in Korea, Japan, and there's that Central Asian area, sort of the Tibetan plateau stretching across sort of central China. Yeah. Their requests and the functional pathology that you see are different in each group. Yes. So, for instance, if you're a Southeast Asian population, often patients from Thailand or Burma or Cambodia they have an eyelid crease mm. quite naturally. Patients from Northeast Asia, many Korean patients don't have eyelid creases or have asymmetric eyelid creases. Okay. In Northeast Asia, often the request is to create an eyelid crease. Now, the patients don't want a Western eyelid. So they don't yeah, it's want- Yeah, a bit a, of a misnomer, isn't it? It is, that's right. So they don't, but they want an eyelid crease that uh, is aesthetically pleasing in that culture. And you can see, you know, if you've ever flown through Seoul or Tokyo, a lot of the magazines of, you know, the, the both the males and the females will show the desirable eyelid crease at that time. Now, that changes with time, but at the moment, that the position of that eyelid crease is very different than you would see on a, on a Caucasian patient. Yeah. So you have to be aware of that. In Southeast Asia... Often the problem is related to some ptosis and a weakening of that crease and a recreation of the normal anatomy. It's very different. If you look at Central Asia, you know, the republics of, you know, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, those sorts of areas, that crease is very different again because it's also linked to folds around the nose. 
Right. That they okay. might be epicanthic folds or different types of folds. And sometimes people want to maintain those folds and sometimes they don't. And that's very complex surgery. We don't need to necessarily get into it now, but yeah. fundamentally, you're right. The, the area of Asia, whether it's Northeast, Central or Southeast Asia, the request that you get and what people want is different. Yeah. And you have to have to know exactly what people want. And they're very, uh, in terms of their, they're very accurate in their assessments and what they want. Yes. So it's important to be able to deliver that if you're going to do that surgery. Yeah. Um, so Angela, um, obviously you've worked both in the public and private system, but yes. for, for those people who want to go down the public route, yes. am I right in saying that if they've got a visual disturbance because their eyelids are so heavy that there's a, and at least an option to go and explore and have a public operation. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. If patients have uh, ptosis or a very low eyelid, or even if they have very excessive droopy skin in the upper eyelid that's affecting their vision, uh, there's an option to go through the public hospital system. Yeah. And I have several colleagues that work in that system, and I will refer, quite happy to refer the patient and try to expedite their appointment. Often they can they can be disappointed with the waiting times for that type of surgery. They may often be over twelve months. Yes, and but there's certainly uh, a process there for patients that need it. One of the interesting things that's happened uh, in the last year or two in terms of the ability to access Medicare funding for eyelid surgery is the requirement for an ophthalmologist or an optometrist to make the decision as to whether eyelid surgery is appropriate. Is appropriate. So that's something that's been quite different. Now, from my point of view, obviously being an ophthalmologist, that's something I can offer the patient straight away. Whereas sometimes if, you know, if they see another surgeon who does the eyelid surgery and they may well need the surgery functionally, they'll have to see somebody else to be able to be given permission for either their health fund or for Medicare to cover that surgery, yeah. which is sometimes really onerous. So the ability to have you know, me see them make the decision on their surgery that it's functionally required really speeds things up for them. Yeah, it yeah. makes it a more streamlined process for yes. them. In terms of um, non-surgical uh, devices such as plasma pen and there's various other technology. I think Jake, you played around with one a little bit yeah, not yeah. too long ago. About a year ago, I tried two brands. Um, to be honest, I, I had one model per pen, so I had you know I didn't have a big uh, series series exactly. And you know the technique's pretty understandable and easy. There wasn't any pain involved for the client. Um, I didn't really have a good opportunity to follow them up. I just got some photos back rather than seeing yes. them in person. Yes, so. I'm sort of sat on the fence. I, I can't really, you know, hand on heart say I, I think it's a good or a bad technique, but it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, have you had Look, any? I, I've had some, not direct experience, but I've had some experience sort of having been in the surgical game now for about 20 years and doing blepharoplasty for the last 20 years. I've seen a lot of different technologies come and go. Yeah. And I've seen some of the technologies like the plasma pen or radiofrequency needling. Can you just that, explain what the plasma pen is? Because people are probably thinking, what the hell are they talking yeah, about? So it's a device that you use to deliver energy to the upper eyelid skin to basically shrink it down. Yes, okay. So 
we've looked at those devices and theoretically they sound fantastic. You know, you've got a pocket of fat there or you've got a little bit of loose skin. Why don't we heat it up and it'll shrink back to a fantastic contour? Yeah. The problems are the healing of any area, especially the eyelid skin, can be very variable. Yes. And difficult to predict. The selection of patients is really important in terms of you need to have a minimal amount of skin to be able to shrink away, whereas because the energy that you deliver to that area needs to be balanced so it doesn't cause any scarring. Yes. And obviously with any energy delivery device around the eye, damage to the eye itself is a real possibility. Yes. If you're not skilled in the use. Yeah. I'm reasonably conservative in these new devices in terms of, I've seen many of them come and go. So something that's really popular for six, 12, 18 months is not around any longer after that. Yeah. In terms of the literature, I publish a lot of papers in uh, ocular plastic and plastic surgery journals related to eyelid skin. And I keep a close watch on, you know, randomized studies or comparative studies. There's very few of those devices that have been tested in a you know, in a randomized controlled trial, yeah. as opposed to, for instance, one of the classical things that people say to me is, why don't you use laser to make the incision for your blepharoplasty? Why don't you do a laser blepharoplasty? And the answer is, I certainly used to use that technique about 15 to 20 years ago, but there's several randomized studies that were published about 10 to 15 years ago now where patients would have a surgical incision with a scalpel on one eyelid and they would have a laser incision on the eyelids and it would be sort of a side-to-side comparison. Hundreds of patients. There was no difference in the healing of the incision. The tendency was for the laser incision to heal slightly less well, Mm. but there was far more complications in the laser incision group by people cutting things that they shouldn't have cut. Oh, God, right. Now, obviously, those were not major complications, but they're things where if you're directing the scalpel yourself, you have a better feel for the tissues. When you're using an energy delivery device, you're at a distance from the tissue. You can't really feel the resistance. You can't really feel if there's a problem. So I stopped using laser incisions about 15 years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. And almost all my colleagues that just specialize in blepharoplasty, all of them use uh, a scalpel to make the incision rather than an energy energy device. I'm certainly happy to have a look at some of these new devices that deliver energy, whether it's radio frequency needling or whether it's the plasma pen. But I think it's one of those areas where it'd be nice to have a comparative study and say, look, it's really safe. It works really well before there was a big take up. I think there's always people always want to believe it's like it's like the, the magic fountain of youth pill or the weight loss pill the, i think they do the non-surgical uh they do surgical treatment <laughs> they do and one of the things that i like to ask patients when i see them for eyelid surgery because most of them just come to me for blepharoplasty or brow lift surgery so i'm really super specialized that's all i do so i don't do any other types of cosmetic surgery so they'll come to me for that i always ask them have you had some other treatments you know whether it's you know, liposuction or whether it's radiofrequency needling or whatever it is, acupuncture. And I always ask them, how did you find that treatment? And one of the things that leads me to suspect that a technique is useful 
is the number of people that say, well, it was excellent, was fantastic. Yeah. I see a lot of things where some, you know, the minority of patients will say it was really good. Most patients say it was okay. And other people say, well, it's not that good. So I get a good feeling for what's out there and what people have done yeah. and, and what's popular. Yeah. I mean, I guess my one concern with the plasma pens, and I'm sure there are various companies, is that there's no standardization of training, who's using them. I've definitely seen beauticians offering them. Really? Let alone, um, you know, medical professionals. So that's my concern, really. It is. It's, you know, am I going to use something that I don't have the backup and the and the support if, if things go wrong or I want to upskill or things like that. I think that's a really good point. And I'm not sure of the training involved in using the plasma pens, but in terms of eyelid surgery or blepharoplasty and in terms of injecting or various non-invasive, there are established pathways yes. that most reasonable practitioners in the field will go through. Yeah. You know, it's very unlikely that, you know, you'll, come out of medical school and say, well, you know what, I'm going to start doing injecting in this area, or I'm going to start doing some liposuction. I'm start going to do blepharoplasty surgery. Usually there are training pathways and various colleges and associations are involved in those. Yeah. And what are they there for? They're there to protect the patient. And fundamentally, what we all do is we try to improve, you know, patients' lives. Yes. But we need to do it, and we all try to do it in a very safe, predictable way. Because you're right, David, you know, this is elective cosmetic surgery. And the worst outcome is really if the patient has a terrible complication or something goes really bad. Yeah, when they were well before. Exactly it, right. It's almost a double uh, disappointment. So you need to predicate any treatment that you give on a minimal downside. Yeah. You know, the worst case scenario is this is going to happen. You may not get an improvement, but you're not going to get a catastrophic loss. Yeah. Now, Angelo, we were going to go on to lower eyelid, but we, we have shortened our podcast recently. Um, no problem. That, so that's what fine. we'll do is we're going to split our lower eyelids into a second episode. Great. And then we're also going to get you back for filler-related blindness, which oh, that's is a, real a really topical hot point, topic, isn't it? isn't it? So thank you for coming. Um, how oh. can people get in contact with yourself, your clinic, uh, if they want to ask any questions or book in, things like that? Usually the easiest way is to uh, ring the clinic, one three hundred thirty seven eighty seven forty seven. There's also a really good website that we've got for the clinic and the services that I offer, and that's doctoredservice.com. We also have a day surgery, the Jameson Street Day Surgery, and that's got a great website as well. Okay. On my website, we've got some information about the surgeries that I do, but we've also got some photographs that we've tried to standardize as far as possible to give people a realistic expectation of what's possible Great, and what to expect. Could you spell your name for us? Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. a good question. <laughs> it is a tough one. T-S-I-R-B-A-S. Um, and in terms of social media, do you have any presence there at all? We do, yeah. So we have an Instagram account that is uh, quite good and a Facebook account. Okay. I don't necessarily like to do a lot on social media and it's a good point because i think it's certainly become more popular yeah and people are streaming various surgeries and uh showing sort of before and afters or really intraoperative photos as well yeah. look i don't i don't do a lot of that 
Uh, it's a bit of a controversial uh, area at the moment. I think some uh, it is a controversial some people area. love it, and some people yeah, think it's a little yeah. bit over the top. So yeah, yeah. look, I think it's a it's a personal yeah. uh, view of the surgeon involved. I, I'm sort of reasonably conservative in terms of uh, the procedures that I do. Are, you know, a very localized yeah. and in a super specialized area yeah absolutely well thanks for joining us we really appreciate uh, you taking the time out to come oh, see no, us thank you very much for the invitation it's been great jake and Dave. awesome thank you we'll uh, speak to you again soon oh, looking care. forward to it bye-bye For our latest news, upcoming episode information and mini video clips of our guests, you can follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. We've also just started a YouTube channel called Inside Aesthetics and we'll be uploading more content and longer videos in the future.